I'm Chuck Smeaton from the Royal Institution of Australia, and this is the Cosmos Briefing Podcast. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land wherever you are listening from today. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past and present. The fledgling discipline of ecoacoustics has added a remarkable diagnostic tool to field biology, a valid and reliable way to prove the absence or presence of our most secretive species. Where many species are incredibly hard to see, the needs of the genetic line still demand that they reach out to potential mates, and they do so through calling. Today, Royal Institution of Australia Editor-in-Chief Ian Cannellan talks to Professor David Watson from the Charles Sturt University about the Australian Acoustic Observatory and how acoustics will transform ecology. Talking today to Professor David Watson from Charles Sturt University in Albury-Wodonga. David's the the head, is that right, of the Institute of Land, Water and Society? Not the head, just an active member. An active member, and um, and David's background is in ornithology. But we're here to talk specifically about the Australian Acoustic Observatory. Dave, can you tell us a little bit about the origins of the observatory? Sure. Uh, so it came around um, as a collaboration uh, between myself and Paul Rowe and his group at QUT. Paul's a uh, uh, software engineer, a computer scientist, uh, and he's been working for a long time in using the sound to um, to monitor biodiversity, to, to, to use sound to get a window on, on what's there. Um, and he wanted to collaborate with, with a bird person, um, and we, we hit it off. We got on really well. And started doing some some work uh, in in the desert in Sturt National Park. So we set up the first sensors there in 2014, uh, and, and used that as a as a sort of a proof of concept, as much to ourselves as, as to anybody else, um, that you can actually do this. You can just put a machine out there in the middle of nowhere um, and let it just record continuously. Uh, and so, and then what what can you do with that? Uh, and is that something interesting? Is that something telling us things? Would, we might want to know, uh, and then can you scale that? So all those sorts of questions. So that was that. that that's when the journey first began for us. Was it technological um, improvements that made this possible? As in, it wouldn't have been possible twenty years ago, but it is. It was ten years ago. Is that? Yeah, without a doubt. There's there's three things. There's digital recording, um, which you know we're not talking about tapes anymore. We're talking about actual you know so straight to digital. So that's one thing, solar power. Solar power is another. So these machines uh, have a little self-contained um, photovoltaic cell and a closed, um, closed cell battery. And then cloud, cloud-based storage. Um, you know, the, the, the way we're talking to each other now with, with, with internet is, was unthinkable, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, this level of, of, of bandwidth. Um, and so that allows us a platform to share, to archive, um, and for for people to collaborate with with what we're producing, so I guess we'll get onto it. But but one of the one of the overarching principles of the work we do is that it is open access. This isn't just data that we collect for our own edification that we that we lock up. Um, it's exactly the opposite. It's data that we're collecting, but it's not really ours. It's everybody's. Yeah. Look, we will get onto that, but let, let's take it in chunks. First of all, speaking about the technology the cloud and the data, my understanding is that you are collecting very large amounts of data. Yeah, it's, so each machine is about collects about a gig a gig of data a day. Okay. Um, and so when you start doing some sums, it gets really big really quick. And so 
uh, a lot of the challenges with 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 this project has been moving around, storing, transferring, archiving, uh, querying uh, massive data sets. So the internet's quite good at image at images uh, and increasingly with video, but sound, um, large sound files, the internet wasn't built for that, and so we're having to come up with all sorts of creative solutions. Right. Um, can you can you tell us about any of those solutions? What have, what have you got to do? Oh, honestly, the, the quickest way to move large files around is to send uh, an external hard drive uh, mm-hmm. through the mail. That's it. That, that, that's so. That's the limit of where we are now in terms of data transfer. Um, Australia is a, is a is a wide brown land full of amazing things. We don't really have an internet uh, compared with many other places in terms of in terms of upload and download speeds. So we're constrained to a very large extent by the complete lack of the of the NBN. We're working around that, and that is a temporary fix. Uh, at some point, uh, we'll get a government who actually invests in in uh, in things that matter, uh, and then we'll we'll all move forward. Right. Um, all right. Look, just thinking about that. So a gigabyte a day per per collection point. How many collection points are out there? So the number varies. It's around three hundred um, and sixty. It's so it's around uh, it's around 90. There's 90 sites. There's 90 spots on the map that you can look at the website and go, huh, where's where's the nearest one to me? Oh, there's there's a dot. At each of those 90 dots, there's four machines. So there's some built-in redundancy there. If a cow leans on a machine, if 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 a bushfire comes through, if something happens, each place has four machines. Uh, so four four autonomous uh, passive acoustic sensors that are sitting there recording right now as as you and I are chatting. Um, and uh, two around wetter, wetter areas, so where, where waterfowl tend to congregate, where a lot of insects do their thing, frogs, and then two uh, in drier areas. So we're, we're straddling that, that productivity gradient as well. Okay. Now, the focus of our story in Cosmos magazine, this issue, is is, is a cryptic bird, Lewin's Rail, and uh, we, we, we talk about the acoustic observatory, but particularly the, the work of Liz Neidersic, who is your, one of your PhD students. Yep. Um, I understand that Liz is in the field this morning in northern Tasmania retrieving some hardware, um, and she's working on a project there. Uh, the long-involved question so we know about the birds, but you just mentioned uh, all kinds of sounds are being collected. Um, insects, I, I guess there must be some evidence of mammals. Can, can you tell us a bit about what comes through? Sure. It's Yes, it's way more than just birds. Um, so raindrops, uh, we're working out ways of quantifying rainfall with, I mean, each little, each, each drop of rain registers. So, uh, and yes, there's Bureau of Meteorology. We're not, we're not trying to reinvent that wheel. But the the bomb the bomb you know uh, universe is is constrained by the number of bomb stations that are out there, and we know in many parts of Australia rainfall, especially, is much more patchy than the current coverage of 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 of, uh, of stations. And so, if you want to know what's actually happening in my spot, so frogs are doing nothing. Suddenly, frogs are doing everything. Well, what triggered that? So we've got effectively real time rainfall data from that. Exact location. So rainfall is one thing. Um, yeah, weird stuff. Um, so you can hear a lot of a lot of mammals. Goats. Goats make a lot of weird sounds. Um, uh, human. Human. You know, uh, anthropophony. Human sounds. So traffic. Planes uh, in desert areas that are very still. Um, you can hear planes from a very long way away. And so obviously, with with COVID nineteen interrupting so many things in our daily lives, flights. You know, stopped. 
Um, and so we're getting much cleaner recordings from many of our desert sites. Yeah, a lot of things come through. Um, I guess the challenge, though, is as, as someone who's very comfortable walking around in the bush and I know, I know calls, I've got thousands of calls on, on, you know, on speed dial, when you're just listening to a recording uh, through headphones, it's amazing how much more of a challenge that is to put a name to a sound. When you're in the bush, you're using all sorts of information that you don't even realise you're using all these filters. So you're there, I'm in northern Tasmania, I'm with Liz, we're in a swamp, I've got a whole lot of files, you know, right there. And my South American stuff obviously is tucked away. Um, whereas if I'm just listening to a recording, it's like, well, what's this? It's like, there could be 400 things to make that call. So without, without more context, without more metadata, um, I'm going to struggle. But then was it up there? Was it down there? Was it running? Was it near a creek? Was it in a flock? All those sources of information you use without knowing you use. And so that's where computers come in, is they don't need that stuff. They don't need that, that, those filters. And that's the challenge at the species scale is to, is to school computers on, hey, this, I want you to find this. Look, that, that's a really interesting part of the story. Um, uh, Liz and her um, collaborator, Michael Towsey, uh, created these false colour spectrograms. Is that how most people are using the data or is it being used in all sorts of different ways? It's being used in, 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 in a variety of ways. So I guess that's a challenge with this, with this project is it's an infrastructure project. It's not actually the traditional sort of scientific project where you say, hey, we've got a question, let's try and answer that question. It's exactly the opposite um, way around. It's, and we call it an observatory for a reason because it's borrowing um, the astronomer's use of the word. And that is, hey, we've all got questions. We all want to, we all wonder about stuff up there, comets, planets, gases, you know, black holes, whatever it is. Let's all pull our money. Let's get a big grant. Let's buy some big kit. Let's point it at the heavens and let's all address our questions with that kit. And so the observatory is exactly that philosophy. It's saying, look, let's invest. Um, uh, let's, let's leverage that investment and get federal, federal buy-in. Let's, let's, let's install and maintain uh, this, this infrastructure and then have at it. You know, what do you want to do? And it's not just, it's not just nerds like me. It's, it's school kids. It's, it's artists. It's, it's, it's musos. The, the applications of this data are only just now starting to become uh, obvious. Um, yeah, so it's, 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 it's a very long list of things you can do with this data. Biodiversity stuff, monitoring, either looking for particular species or getting a handle on, on sort of more broader questions, which is my real interest is sort of more ecosystem health and how's this, how's this place travelling? Is it getting better? Um, do we need to intervene? Um, yeah, that, that's my interest, but that's, that's just one, one small component of the things you can do with this, with this data set. This is, um, excitingly, this is new science, isn't it? It's not, it's not something that, that everyone gets to do in their career and you, you've kind of invented this new thing and it's really interesting to hear you say, well, we're not quite sure exactly how far we can push it. Very much so. And I guess the analogy I'd use uh, is it's, so when I did my PhD, uh, GIS was, was, was becoming a thing. So it was in the late 90s um, and we were using GIS, so um, Geographic Information Systems, to, to query um, spatial data and look at patterns um, through space uh, about vegetation change, about distribution patterns of organisms, that kind of thing. Um, I had colleagues who were working on GIS who were very, very quantitative, very skillful programmers. 
I wanted maps. I wanted some fancy maps of my study system. And I realized that most ecologists, it took us about 20 years to realize that you can use GIS, that whole way of doing spatial science. That's more than just pretty maps. It's a whole discipline in and of itself. But it took us a long time to integrate that way of thinking, that new capability, that new way of, 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 of quantifying the things we care about with our own you know, baggage of this is what I know, this is what I think about, this is how I can address the questions I find interesting. Acoustic data is exactly the same. And it's going to take decades, decades for all manner of scientists to realise, huh, so that's possible? You can do that? Well, if you can do that, then what about this? And that's that's where we are now. And, and there's going to be many, many people who say, hey, I want to do this. It's like, yeah, can't do that now. I mean, that's cool. That's good that you want to do that. If you really want to do that, you're going to need to work out how to do that because no one has. And that's I get like three emails like that a day. Right. Um, let, let's step backwards again. So the project's funded for five years. Is that right? Yes. And how far in are we? We're almost there. So we're a couple of years to go. So we're at the pointy end. Uh, all the gear's in. The data's streaming in. It's getting uploaded. So it's it's now it's now we're past the deployment stage and we're now into right let's let's do this let's uh, and, and now let's start working on the interface and we sort of held back because we don't know what people are going to want to use it for and so it's very it's a it's a very dynamic uh, approach that we're using now right the, this all of this data has been collected it's being stored um, it's open source as you said towards the front of the interview um, people are. You've frozen, you're back. Great. People are using this. Who's using it? What, can you give me some examples of, um, of people in science that are accessing the data and what are they doing with it? So I guess Liz is a great example. So Liz's project, she's looking at a whole bunch of sneaky birds. Uh, these are animals that live in places where people don't really go, um, and they they but they call. They, they find one another uh, with, with calls, and so we were eavesdropping on those calls to go, huh. So, yes, you are there. And so, Liz, as, as you said, with, with Michael Townsie, they're using um, a really fancy approach, false colour spectrograms, which Michael invented, to, to I guess, reduce down um, the acoustic complexity of a soundscape into um, a colour palette that, that humans are much better, you know, placed to, 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 to analyse and to query, and then using that to go, huh, okay, so these critters are in these places, not in these places. And in some of the places where they are, they're just there now and then. And in some of those places, they're breeding and they're there year-round. And so that's that's shining a light on habitat preferences, on distributional dynamics, on, on, on subtle migratory stuff, on weird behavioural things we didn't know about for a whole suite of, of critters that they might be rare, they might not be rare, um, they're rarely encountered. And so we're now trying to parse, um, okay, so the lack of records of these things, is that just because we've been looking in the wrong places or using uh, using the wrong kit, or are they actually vanishingly rare? And so Lewin's Rail, the, the, the species you started with, is, is a case in point. That's in parts of its range, it's doing well. In parts of its range, it's there. You go to places where you think it should be, it's going to be there. In other parts of its range, it's fallen off a cliff. We don't know why. Uh, we don't know if those habitats, those parts of its range are seasonally used. And acoustics is, is, is the perfect tool for that because the most expensive part of most environmental research is simply getting to the place, simply like getting your kit together 
getting in a vehicle, a plane, whatever it is, and, and physically standing in the place, and then you start to collect data. So with acoustic, with passive acoustic monitoring, you do that once, you set the kit up, there it is. You go home, you're sitting on the couch, you're watching the Olympics, and data is just streaming. And so it's a very, very efficient way to collect data to address many questions. Um, yes, that's, that's, it gets me, gets me all hot and bothered just thinking about it. <laughs> One of the things, I remember a conversation with Liz some years ago, uh, and I, a, a part of field work that I hadn't considered before, but she was saying that one of the hardest things to do before acoustic monitoring was to infer absence. Um, just just because you haven't heard something doesn't mean it's not there. <laughs> so that, that must have made a huge change. Yeah, exactly. And I, I guess it's something that, that, that non-biologists might not have really thought about before. One of the best data sets with that is with snakes. A fellow called Mark Kerry did some work in Switzerland on three species of snake. And his approach was really simple. He went to these outcrops, these granite outcrops, and just walked along them, walked along the long axis, uh, up and back. Um, did I see one of those three species of snake? Yes or no? Real simple science. Um, with some sites, with some species, it took 30, 30 visits of, no, didn't see that species of snake before he saw the first one. So they were there. They were there the whole time. So absences, absences, I lose sleep over this. It's like, oh, is it there? Is it there in vanishingly low densities? Are we looking in the wrong way? Are we looking at the wrong time? Are we using the wrong cues? Or is it is it not there? And so, yeah, acoustics is a way to gather an immense amount of data uh, in a very efficient way. And then, yeah, with computers, you can say, okay, so that thing, is it there? No, it's not. And that's gold. From a modelling point of view, from an informing policy point of view, that is, that's, that's a game changer. Yeah, okay. Um, is your hope that the project will continue after the five years? Do you think there's, there's value in it continuing? Yes, I think I think the project has legs, and I think it's got a long a long future. But it really isn't my call. It's going to be up to up to Australia, up to up to the up to taxpayers, up to people using these data to say yes, we care about this, um, and we're going to encourage our representatives to invest in it. Yeah. Okay. David, uh, I, I could talk about this for quite a while longer, but um, I, I know you've got to get on, and uh, I've got to make sure that I don't talk for an hour. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I look forward to talking again sometime in the future. Excellent. Cheers. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Remember that you can head to cosmosmagazine.com via the link in the description for more great content. You can also subscribe to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's only science print magazine, and Cosmos Weekly, our online subscription-based deep dive into the biggest issues. You can watch and listen to all our Cosmos briefings via the link that you'll also find in the description. And remember, if you support science and its communication, please support our work at the Royal Institution of Australia. I'm Chuck Smeaton. Today's interview was hosted by Ian Canellan, and our executive producer is Catherine Roberts. Thank you. Thank you.